morning. Thank you, worship team, for preparing our hearts and leading us to Jesus. It is good to see you guys here this morning. I, uh, I heard birds singing outside today across the icy pond, but still, I heard birds singing. It's a sign of new life. The end is near. We're going to make it. I feel like if we get to April, we should all get a gold star on our backs or something. Like, good job. We are in Daniel again. We have a full morning this morning, and we're excited that you've come to worship with us. We have been working consecutively through the book of Daniel, chapter by chapter, uh, which which to some of you is a great disservice to the text because it's not verse by verse, Chad Thompson. But to others of you, you are spared and you're thankful. But we are going chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. And our study brings us today to Daniel chapter 9. I, I wanted to ask a quick question, and there's no pressure here. You won't be assessed a penalty after the service. But how many of you are in, in preparation for Sunday morning looking at the next passage in line for Daniel. Just me? Okay, good. There's a handful of you. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I don't, I don't know if I've encouraged you to do that yet or not, but it would be wise of you to uh, pick up the next chapter and skim through it so that when you arrive here, you have a basic understanding and framework of the passage that we're talking about. Maybe some questions that, are, uh, that came up during your reading will actually be addressed here, and uh, it is helpful for you. So, we are in for a treat. I, have, uh, I told our staff earlier this week that at that time I had spent the better part of three days with my face buried in this passage and I felt more confused at that point than when I had started. And that doesn't bode too well for any of you this morning, but you're stuck with me now. So here we go. You'll remember that the back half of the book of Daniel is written in a style and format that we call apocalyptic literature, a kind of writing where God has uncovered or revealed something to the author and to the readers and the author is doing his best to capture what he is seeing or hearing and sharing, uh, share it. We said that apocalyptic literature is like a, a literary shock treatment, that it's designed to startle readers awake, to alarm and alert them, and, and ultimately to alarm them and alert them to the reality of God's final triumph over evil and wickedness in this world and to draw the wandering back to faithfulness and obedience. So to that end, it is full of dramatic imagery of beasts with wings and iron teeth, animals with horns that grow and speak. Today, we're going to be seeing the uncovering of certain amounts of numbers and times. And as I was preparing this morning or this week for this passage, I came across four different commentators who all quoted the same previous commentator that said Daniel chapter 9 and especially these final four verses are the most difficult in the entire book to translate and to interpret and argued that they are the most challenging in all of the scriptures. And I feel like that should at least merit a measure of grace for me this morning. And maybe you can pad the grade on the degree of difficulty, like an Olympic diver or something, that because what I'm attempting here is so challenging, then the measure, extra measure of grace will be appreciated if my performance isn't quite as stellar as I would like. If we wait here at the beginning long enough, I'll run out of time at the end and won't have to get to it at all. But uh, that wouldn't be of much help to you now, would it? So Daniel chapter 9, we're going to start We're going to start reading in verse 20. We're going to work through the whole passage generally, but we're going to start in verse 20. Daniel offers a prayer, and in verse 20, the angel Gabriel is sent to speak to him. In verse 20, here's what he says. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel... 
and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come the one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. See what I mean? I got the short straw. All right. Daniel chapter 9 is challenging, and it presents us a lot of questions. And, and your understanding of this passage is tied to a whole lot of other presuppositions you, you come to uh, about how to interpret prophetic literature. What is the role and nature of apocalyptic imagery? What is your position on how God will interact with the nation of Israel? What is the church age? What, your, your answers to those questions really help form and frame your understanding of this passage. But it is the word of the Lord, and God has promised to provide his spirit to bring illumination to it, to open our eyes to see it, and it is beneficial for the church to study it. So we will submit ourselves to its authority today and seek to find understanding. The first thing we need to see in this passage, at the, all the way back to the beginning of Daniel chapter 9, is Daniel's discovery. Thankfully, he gives us a yet another timestamp. The first year of Darius the Mede, remember the guy who tossed him in the lion's den? That guy? The first year of Darius, this vision apparently occurs then, sometime after chapter 5 with the fall of Babylon, somewhere around the time of chapter 6. Probably before chapter 6, as it was in the very first year of his reign. Think about this. Daniel is an old man at this point. He has spent his entire life, apart from the handful of years as a young man where he was in Jerusalem, he spent his entire life at this point living in Babylon, and he just watched as a new kingdom overthrew Babylon and is setting up an administration right now. And as he is reading in the prophet Jeremiah, he perceives in the books, Daniel is reading his Bible, which I know is probably not the most earth-shattering thing for you to hear this morning, but it is a good thing to look at. Daniel, the prophet of God, who's been given a special gift of revelation and interpreting dreams, is still somebody who opens the word of God and submits to it and reads it. It is wise for the people of God to spend as much time as possible studying their Bibles. 
And Daniel is here studying the Bible, reading in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. He finds this passage, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And as he reads that, he thinks, whoa, that's us. That we're here, we're served. we are doing just that. This land has become a waste. And now I've been deported. And here I am serving Babylon. And it says I'm going to serve for 70 years. And then he realized that when he did the math, that he's getting really close to the end of that 70 years. And that was what the, t- the passage was talking about. And further, he realized if Jeremiah was talking about him and his peers, then they'd be returning home soon. There is an excitement that builds with Daniel at this point. So a couple of things. One, one, you see Daniel reading his Bible, but secondly, you see Daniel believing his Bible. He read this. He said, God had revealed to the prophet Jeremiah, this would be 70 years. Daniel fully expected God to fulfill his promise and do exactly what he said. And he instantly turns to prayer. And it's a beautiful prayer. It's a long prayer. It's a model prayer. And he intercedes on behalf of the people of God. And remember, Daniel is a guy who's full of integrity, right? Daniel's a guy who's full of righteousness. Daniel, Daniel's a guy who we, we don't find in the, in the book of Daniel a bunch of places where he's messing up and having to seek repentance. And great. I mean, he's, he's walking in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, and yet he identifies himself with the people of Israel. Sounds like another prophet that I heard of a couple thousand years ago who was sinless and yet identified himself with the people of God. And he makes this petition before the Lord. He turns his faith to the Lord, not a flippant way, not a casual prayer, but a communion with God. He sets his face. He seeks to hear from God. And he fasts. He goes without food. And he dons sackcloth and ashes. Those are mourning clothes. All of this demonstrating a deep sense of humility that Daniel was embracing, he was keenly aware of the glory of the Lord and the privilege of an audience with him. That's a good word for the church this morning. Sometimes we think that, we we get the impression that that because of grace and because we've, we've had this audience with the king, because through the mercy of God and through the blood of Jesus, we can enter in boldly to the, the throne room of God. But we, we, we get the impression that because that is all available to us, we can treat it casually or flippantly like God is just some good friend of ours. And there is a measure of respect and honor and humility that needs to accompany that audience and that access. And this prayer from Daniel in the ninth chapter is a model for other believers. We often talk about the Acts model of prayer, where we uh, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And it, it kind of follows that model a little bit, more like uh, adoration, confession, and petition, or, uh, or supplication. But the beginning of this prayer is definitely a prayer of adoration. Look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins by reminding God of his character and nature and reminding himself of God's character and nature, reminding, therefore, everybody who reads this passage of God's character and nature. And the overall tone of the prayer is definitely confessional. But Daniel begins by extolling the greatness and the awesomeness of God. 
And the awesomeness of God and the greatness of God is seen here in this passage in that God is faithful to keep his covenant, his steadfast love. He is faithful to the promises that he has made his people. Promises to make them a great nation. Promises to be their God as they are his chosen people. Promises to give them a land that was not theirs. He is not a God who turns back on his promises. And Daniel who has endured close to 70 years of captivity, who was awaiting the return from exile, is re- who just found a promise in the scripture that would only be 70 years, is turning to the great promise keeper and, and saying to God, you are great and awesome because you don't turn back on your promises, but you are faithful to fulfill them. Reminding God of what he said. You ever, your children ever do that to you? But dad, you said... Dad, you said, I know, I know I said. I said a lot of stupid things in my life. Why did you listen to that one? I know. They, they remind and you're trapped. You're caught. You don't, you don't have a choice. You can't lie. He's reminding God of who he, you promised God. And he's leaning on God's character as a faithful promise-keeping God. Very important aspect of God's character, especially as the nation of Israel has not been abundantly faithful in their end of this covenant especially pertaining to their duties of obedience and exclusive worship. Daniel's about to petition God to keep his promises, even as they have struggled to keep theirs. And as he does so, he'll be doing it on the basis of God's righteousness and not his own. It's a prayer of confession. Look at verse 5 and 6. We have sinned. We've done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Sin literally means to miss the mark of God's desires, commands, his standards of righteousness. So Daniel who by all accounts is a man of righteousness and integrity, identifies with sinful Israel and says, we, we have fallen short of your standard of holiness, the standard of expectation, your standard of righteousness. We have acted in rebellious ways. We have not submitted ourselves to your loving leadership, but instead have warred against you, rebelled against you, and we've been wicked. And we know from the testimony of scriptures that this included things like sexual immorality, idolatry, worshiping the false gods of other nations, of refusal to care for the poor, the fatherless, the widowed, the oppressed. We we know that it involved intermarrying with with, um, the daughters of foreign nations, which had nothing to do with ethnicity and everything to do with worship. We, we know that they were, they were creating and intermingling with their, their neighboring nations and diluting the pure worship of God. They were not listening to what he had given them to do. And so God, in his mercy, sent them prophets. God sent them messengers to speak to them to remind them of his standard, to give a warning of what would happen if they chose to continue in their rebellion. And they did not listen to the prophets either. They refused to turn their hearts back to him. They ignored God. 
Lord, to you, he says, to you belongs righteousness. Why does God deserve the righteousness? Because he's been faithful. But to us, he said, to the people of Israel, and he puts himself in that camp, to us belong open shame. To God belongs righteousness. He's been abundantly good. He's been faithful to the end. But to us, your people, we deserve open shame because of our wickedness, our rebellion, our arrogance, our self-sufficiency. We have walked not in faithfulness to the covenant that we made with you, but we've rebelled against you. And now, look at verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses God you made it very clear what would happen if we rebelled against you and now in your faithfulness you poured out judgment on your people. Even in that, he's being faithful. He's faithful to love, faithful to forgive, faithful to sustain, and faithful in that he followed through. When they rebelled, he sent oppression. When they rebelled, he sent them into exile. He was faithful to keep his word. And Daniel says, all of this has been poured out upon us justly. In your faithfulness, God. And even as all of this has fallen on us, we still won't turn back to you. We still have not sought forgiveness. We still haven't returned to you. So God, you continue to apply pressure to the discipline. You continue in your goodness to bring correction to us. You continue to bring calamity to turn our hearts back to you. Again, this is again a testimony of God's faithfulness to turn the hearts of his people back to him. There's no pretense here, is there? Da Notice that Daniel does not suggest that God is misunderstanding the intentions of the nation of Israel. There, there's no story about why this is acceptable behavior. Well, you don't understand, God. You see, the, the neighboring nations made me do it, right? Like if you ever, if those of you who have children, I hear theoretically that certain children at times blame their actions on certain other children in their home. And that if, if a certain other child wasn't present in their life or in their family, then certainly their behavior would be righteous and moral, upstanding at all times, right? It was them they, why did, I have one in particular who I look at and say, can you tell me why you just did that? And the first words out of his mouth are his siblings' names. And I said, I'm sorry, I didn't ask what they did. I said, can you tell me why you did that? Yeah, because they did this other thing. Like that, that doesn't add up. I, I'm going to punish you now for being silly. Come on. Um, he doesn't make any pretense here. He doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't suggest that God is misunderstanding Israel's intentions. Or he doesn't suggest that they were coerced into breaking God's law. He is, in true humility, bringing, the light, bringing into the light of God's presence the darkness of their sinful activity and attitudes. He is confessing. 
He is agreeing, that word confess means to agree with God. He is agreeing with God that the activity of the nation of Israel is not righteous and moral, but is evil and wicked and is sinful. He is dragging it out into the light of God's presence and truth. But also in doing that, he doesn't lay any blame at the feet of God either. On the contrary, he's agreeing with God that based on the disobedience of the people, God is just and righteous in sending them into exile. We got what we deserved. Because in rebellion, we wouldn't turn our hearts back to you. In the face of everlasting faithfulness, in the face of unrelenting love, in the face of mercy and grace, his people turn away. And before we get real self-righteous and cross our arms and say, yeah, what's wrong with those people? Let us not, for, let's not forget that we are people who have received grace upon grace, upon whom God has lavished all the riches of his glory and in, in, in his purposes. And we struggle from time to time to submit to his authority and leadership. And we turn our hearts away from him to other things. Their story is our story. We know exactly how this feels. Daniel's just agreeing with God, confessing the sins of the nation. But it's also a prayer of petition. In verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts. Notice he doesn't say, God, according to all of our righteousness, according to the record of all the moral things we've done, all the old ladies we helped across the street, all the times we attended Awana, according to all of the righteousness that is present in our account, look on us with favor. No, 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 he says, based on your righteousness, According to your perfect acts, according to that, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Listen now, therefore, verse 17, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servant to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Lift the anger and the wrath and the punishment. Turn it away from us, Lord. Turn it away from your city, Jerusalem. Turn it away from your people, because of our sin and the punishment, we have become a byword. We are a punchline. We are a laughingstock among the nations. We say that we serve the living God, that our temple is the place to worship, that God's presence abides there. The temple is in ruins. The walls are destroyed. We aren't even in the land right now. We have become a punchline because of this punishment. God, turn, turn away your anger from us. We are in an enormous mess. And then he says, restore us. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary. Implying here that if the light of the face of God and, his, and the, the gaze, the affectionate, peaceful gaze of God would return to Jerusalem, then it wouldn't be desolate anymore. It would be vibrant. It would be alive again. Turn 
Turn your face to us. Make it shine on your sanctuary. For your own sake, he says, be merciful. Okay, so that's an interesting thing. He's not just for us, God. Not just to, not just to give us comfort. Not just to restore our joy in you. Not just to strengthen our understanding of your faithfulness. But for your own sake, Lord, be merciful. Because we are your people. And we walk around as a laughingstock in this generation with your name attached to us. This is your city and they all know it. And we are your people and they all know it. And it brings you glory to be faithful to your promises and restore your city and restore your people. For your own sake, God, bring mercy. It's a matter of your reputation as well. God, hear us. Open your eyes and see our condition, he cries. Lord, forgive us and intervene. He's asking that God in his mercy would turn away from anger, would turn towards them in love and forgiveness, and would restore them. What a beautiful prayer. And then the answer is given. And the answer might produce more questions than were present at the beginning. Here's the answer. While he was speaking and praying, this is the part we read at the beginning, while he was speaking and while he was praying, God sent a messenger. It's Gabriel again. Gabriel makes a, another cameo appearance here in the story. Again, he is seen as helping God's servants to make sense of his revelation and his activities. Daniel, he says, when you began to pray, a word went out. Look at, look at verse 23. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I, this is not the point of the passage today, but I want to I bring up something that I think is really cool. Sometimes when we pray, it feels like our prayers are hitting the ceiling. Right? Like, like you, you bow to pray, you close your eyes, you fold your hands like good little Baptist kids are taught to do, right? That's the posture. And, uh, and it feels sometimes like they're stalling. Or maybe you're in a season where your heart is just being ripped out and you're overwhelmed with emotion and the circumstances of your life are, are crushing and painful and difficult and in your praying to God it doesn't feel like it's making any difference have you ever been there where it feels like you're just uttering words your, your mind is telling you based on the truth of the scriptures that God has heard you yes that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much yes that he won't leave you or forsake you Yes, but at your kitchen table, you feel completely alone that he's not hearing, that he's not listening, and he's not intervening. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Here's one more place in the scriptures where the prayer of a righteous man does avail much. That as he began to pray, a word went out. And what is all of that? What, what, what's the point I'm trying to make? God hears you. 
He sees you. He knows your circumstance. He understands the plight. He knows what you're facing. He understands the great difficulty and challenge that is before you or the great season of blessing you're in right now. It does not escape him. Not only does he know you, but he responds to you. And the word might come out and it might not be the word you anticipated, but he hears and responds to his people. And you, he says, are greatly loved. And some of you today just need to hear that. Some of you don't need to hear the 70 weeks or this, this crazy long prayer. What you need to hear is that in your despair, when you cry out to God, he sees your condition, he hears you, and he loves you. He says, Daniel, I know exactly the mess you're in. I can see what's happening to my people. I heard your prayers. Daniel, you are loved greatly. So consider the vision and its meaning. So he says, there are 70 weeks decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. He gives the 70 weeks. My plan to run out of the time apparently has not worked, <laughs> unfortunately. 70 weeks, the word weeks is really sevens. 70 sevens are decreed. And there are certain things about the nation of Israel, about his people, that will happen in this period of time, this 70 sevens. Six things, actually. Transgression will be finished. Israel's rebellion against God, and in general, humanity's rebellion against God, will be complete and finalized. Sin will be, will be ended. An end will be brought to sin that no longer will people be dominated and harassed by those desires, by those attitudes, those dispositions. Sin will be ended Iniquity will be atoned for. Sometime during this 77s, during this period of time, a covering will be made as our unrighteousness will be covered over by the righteousness of a sacrifice. That's, that's sacrificial language, the atoning of iniquity. A blood sacrifice offered then to purify and to sanctify us. And everlasting righteousness, unending, unhindered righteousness, will be brought in. Vision and prophecy will be sealed up, or the prophet will be sealed up. There's coming a point, Daniel, in these 70 weeks where it won't be necessary anymore. Because God himself will be among you. And you won't need someone to speak on his behalf. He can speak for himself. And the most holy place, or it could be a holy thing, it could be a holy one, a most holy place will be anointed. All right. So remember the context here. Daniel finds that Jeremiah says the exile is going to be over in 70 years. Gabriel comes to bring an answer to the prayer, a prayer that asked God, God, be faithful again, be merciful, turn your anger away, remove wrath from us, restore us back. 
Gabriel says, okay, there is coming a day where you will be restored. But here are the things that are going to happen. Here are the things that are decreed. During this time, these 77, these six important things that we just talked about are going to happen. Now, as Israel has failed miserably to be faithful to their part of the covenant, God is revealing that at a specified point in the future, he's finally going to fix this inconsistent mess. That there's coming a day where he will intervene, where he will solve this cycle of rebellion and sin. That part in general isn't all that confusing. But what he does next has been the source of considerable debate in college dorm rooms and seminary classrooms and your kitchens for a long, long time. Daniel then exp- Gabriel then explains to Daniel that these remaining 77s are going to be broken into three distinct periods of time. There is one group of seven sevens. Then there will be another group of 62 sevens, 69 Seven, 62 plus 7 is 69. And then there will be one final 7. That equals 77, right? 7 plus 62 plus 1. Now, I'm not good on common core math, but I'm pretty sure that that still equals 70 today. Okay, so he says the first 7, the first collection of 7s, and this should be understood as seven years, I believe, based on the context of the passage and what else is going on in this chapter. The first seven, 49 years, that goes from the time that a decree goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, seven sevens. Oh, remember? Actually, that, that did happen. Remember the book of Nehemiah? God moved in the heart of the king and there actually was a decree issued to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Remember the, the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah? They, they went and rebuilt the temple and they went and rebuilt the walls. That actually did happen. And so what, you can look at history and say, wow, that, that actually did take place. There was a decree to restore and rebuild. And to the, from the time of that decree until the time of an anointed one, there was seven weeks or 49 years. Verse 25, he says, there's a second period of time in view, a period of 62 weeks or 62 sevens. And if these are indeed years, then we're looking at a time period of 434 years. And during that time period, what we're told is going to happen is that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, be reconstructed, but it will be reconstructed under duress in times of trouble. Well, that actually sounds like what happened. That as the, the nature of, of the revelation of, of uh, Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's vision, as these kingdoms of the world have risen and fallen, it was a season of duress for the people as they rebuilt the city and flourished. And then, at the end of the 62 sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be cut off and have nothing. Then the city and the sanctuary are destroyed by the people of the prince who is to come. And the end will come swiftly like a flood, and there shall be war to the end. Well, that actually is what happened, historically. At the end of this season of time, which 
depending on where you start the timeline, runs to maybe the baptism of Jesus, maybe the presentation of Jesus on Palm Sunday as he rides into Jerusalem, that, that at the end of these weeks, there is someone who was cut off, an anointed one who was killed. And following that, there was an army of people who came in AD 70 under the leadership of General Titus and destroyed Rome, or destroyed Jerusalem. One will come at the end, and then he, right? So we have those 62 weeks. And then he, the identity of he right here is one of the most significant questions in this entire passage. He, not, not the Roman general who destroyed it. That doesn't make any sense. You have to go back. He will come and make a strong covenant with many for one week, and there's a final week. There's our 70. And for half of that week, sacrifice and offering will be put to an end. One will come who makes desolate the close of that week, and he will be present until the decreed end, until judgment falls on the desolator. So what are we to make of these 77s? What, what, is all that, what does all that mean? There, there are a few popular views. I'm going to present them to you, to bore half of you, to intrigue some of you, and to put four of you to sleep. So here they are. Here they are. One, one view is that these are literal years. Sevens are, so we're talking about 490 literal years that end with the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. That's one view. So the first seven then are from the time of the destruction of Jerusalem until the release of the exiles by Cyrus. The anointed one in this view is Joshua, the high priest, not Joshua who followed Moses, different guy, Joshua the high priest. The next 62 sevens run from that high priest until the death of another anointed high priest, Onias III. And the final seven is the persecution at the hands of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And at the end of his persecution, he was destroyed. And some say, that's it, it's all over. That's what it was. I don't think that's the case. I don't think in those 490 years that the things that God said were going to happen in those four, uh, 490 years actually occurred. Last I checked, I'm still sinning, and uh, so it hasn't been ended yet. So I, I feel like there are things that, in that view, are, it's lacking. Another view is that these are symbolic periods of time that end at the second coming of Christ. So people would hold this view, would see this as kind of a, a prophecy of the unfolding of church history. And it extends from Cyrus's decree to rebuild Jerusalem, back in Nehemiah, right? Cyrus's decree, go rebuild Jerusalem, and it goes all the way to the second coming of Jesus. And you'll say, wait a minute, that's not 490 literal years. And I'll say, I know it's symbolic, right? They would say that the first seven years are run from that decree, and they go to the advent of Jesus, they would say that the next 62 sevens are from the time of Christ to the persecution of the church that the Antichrist will bring. And so as Jerusalem is built up, what that means is spiritually the people of God, the church is built up under great duress. We are living in exile. And at the end of those 62 sevens, the final seven, the anointed one, the Antichrist will come, destroy the city and the sanctuary. And although that that is a popular view held by some. I think it presents a lot of problems. Namely, in this passage already, 70 years was actually 70 years, not a symbolic period of time. So it seems interesting to me that we would, at the beginning of the passage, say 70 years 
prophesied by Jeremiah equals 70 years, but at the end of the passage, now all of a sudden we're talking about thousands and thousands of years that were condensed into 70. Not the least. Anyway, so that's one, that's one view. I don't think it makes the best case. I don't think that's the most compelling view. The third view, that is probably the one that most of us would hold and the one that I have been taught and the one that seems to, at this point, make the most sense is that these are literal years that do end with the second coming of Christ with one small caveat. So the first seven then would be the decree to go complete Jerusalem and it would run to the completion of Ezra and Nehemiah's work. The next 62 or the next 434 years would extend from the time of Nehemiah to the time of either Christ's baptism or Palm Sunday, depending on how you date that. And then at the point of Christ's death, the anointed one who's cut off, by the word, by the way, that word for cut off is the language used in sealing a covenant. It's covenant language that um, he was cut in order to seal the agreement between God and his people, which is exactly what the death of Jesus did. The point of Christ's death, now there is a prophetic gap There is a pause in the fulfilling of this prophecy. And as the Jews have rejected Messiah, God now moves on to deal with the Gentiles. Like Paul says, the gospel came to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. In what we now know as the church age. And so we are are living then in this view in a kind of unforeseen gap in the prophetic story. And when the predetermined time of the Gentiles is over, God will once again pick up his agenda with the nation of Israel, and the last seven will begin. And it'll be a time of great tribulation. It'll be a time that will end with the rise of the Antichrist and the return of Jesus to establish the thousand-year reign. Wow. So which one? Well, I, I think we'll probably land together on the third, Each one presents its own difficulty and explanation. If we start, we have to really fiddle with the times to make it work in in number one. And it doesn't actually accomplish the things that Daniel says are going to happen there. The second is interesting because, like I said, in Daniel Daniel 9, 70 years equals 70 years. It's not symbolic. But at the end of the the passage, now we're supposed to take it symbolically. The third is difficult because it does leave us with that gap. That unforeseen gap. But when we consider how Old Testament prophecy came to us, that shouldn't surprise us all that much. Because it seems like the prophets were predicting that at the arrival of Jesus, all the blessings of the Messiah would come. And it it is obvious to us now, 2,000 years later, that while Christ inaugurated that kingdom, it is not finally and fully established here. We're living here. We could see that it's not finally and fully established here. So just because it was an unforeseen gap shouldn't be too much of a stumbling block for us. The view that I have held that has been taught to me is is the third one. It has always seemed to present to me the fewest challenges. And if that's the case, then we are now living in that gap between the 69th and 70th week, awaiting the close of the time of the Gentiles, awaiting the time when the Antichrist will rise to leadership of a global coalition and will unleash terrible persecution against the people of God. So what? Like, What in the world are we supposed to make of all that? Well, I remind you of my 
My friend Alistair Begg, who I've never actually met, but I hope to meet one day. If any of you know him, let me know. I, he says that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Or, or as Larry Osborne, who's a, a pastor in California, said, we can't let the obscure block out the obvious. So let's fly over this thing at a, a big picture level. What is this revealing to us about God? And some of it's very challenging and some of it's confusing, but some of it is so crystal clear and simple. The first is this, this Bible that we have in our possession that was preserved for us is inspired. It is God's word. And our faithful covenant-keeping God will fulfill his promises. He will bring correction and discipline in our rebellion. He'll restore his people from exile. He'll one day triumph over all the kingdoms of this world and rule and reign forever. What we need to know today is that the God we serve is faithful to fulfill his promises. That's that's part of what Daniel is, is experiencing here. The second is this, that the future of this world with its rising and falling kingdoms, with its waves of persecution and blessings for God's people, is not a chaotic roll of the dice. If you watch CNN, you'll feel that way. You turn on Fox News, you don't feel that way. You watch 24-hour coverage of all the rising and falling kingdoms of this world. It feels like we are unsettled. If you open your Bible and read, it doesn't feel that way at all. This is not a chaotic roll of the dice. This is a controlled release of God's economy and agenda in this world for his purposes and for his glory. There is a master plan. You don't know it. <laughs> he doesn't have to tell you all of it. It would overwhelm you if you did. But I promise you, there is a captain at the helm of this ship, hands on the wheel, steering the vessel safely home. He's going to get us exactly where we need to be at just the right time. The world we live in is not a chaotic roll of the dice. It is controlled, and it's controlled by a sovereign God. And finally today, another thought that's been with me during my study is that Gabriel was saying to Daniel, in some senses, Daniel, the exile is going to be over. Sort of. But in a way, the people of God will live in exile until that kingdom comes. Until the end of these 77s, when the kingdom of God replaces the kingdoms of this world. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, just like Daniel's vision in chapter 7. It's all, it's all together, it's all some of the same themes. The people of God has always been exiles seeking to honor God and live under his leadership, even when they find themselves in places that are technically not part of that kingdom. I was just reading this morning in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he prays that even though we're not of this world, that we would be kept and preserved in this world. Jesus was praying for us because he knew we would be exiles. The people of God are in good places when they're in exile. But be reminded today and every day, our geography, our, the fact that we're in exile, our geography doesn't override our obedience to the king. We can live faithfully as exiles here. God has given us all that we need. And he's promised that this exile is not permanent. He's promised that one day we will no longer be exiles, but we will receive the kingdom and we will rule and reign with Christ forever as the kingdom of God and his Christ comes and overtakes and envelops and triumphs over all the kingdoms of this world. And now, we can be sick and lay down for a few days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
for the message of the scriptures, for its truth and its power. We thank you that you are in control over the affairs of the nations and that you revealed to us your plan. God, we know that you are at the helm. We know based on your prophecy, God, that you have all of this under your control. And we know with confidence that we are called here to live as exiles until the kingdom of Christ is, in, is instituted here. Lord, give us your grace as we live in exile. Help us to follow you faithfully, regardless of the cost. Help us, God, to be obedient and submissive. Help us, God, to find joy in walking and living under your leadership and your reign. And Lord, as we look to the coming days, as we, as we envision a time coming where it seems uncertain for the kingdoms of this world, help us to maintain faithfulness to you. Help us to remember your faithfulness to us, your faithfulness to answer and fulfill your promises. God, you are abundantly merciful. You are good. To you belong righteousness and glory and honor and to us belongs open shame for sure. And all of that leads us to, to desperation. God, you are good and deserve glory. We are not and deserve punishment. Where can we go in this mess? And all of that drives us to the gospel of Jesus, who became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And today we rejoice fresh and new in the glory of the forgiveness of our sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That promised Messiah who is coming to rule and to reign. And it's in his name that we pray today. Amen.